0: Testing, testing, one, two, three. This is a recording for Blast Points Holiday Special. This is J.W. Rinsler. And instead of talking about Star Wars and holidays, I'd like to talk about, in a sense, the company that made the Star Wars movies, of course, masterminded by George Lucas. But Skywalker Ranch was... Truly really a special place to be working during the Christmas season. There was just so much, so many nice things. There were uh, company gifts, which were very thoughtful, and I think those were usually planned by Jane Bay, George's longtime executive assistant. And there was a beautiful Christmas tree in the main house. The main house was all lit up with Christmas lights, and there was a great lucasfilm party every year and some with just incredible parties with each one themed new orleans or amusement parks they actually had a mini roller coaster uh roller skating one time uh great food just it was just a really special place to be during the holidays it was a very employee friendly company and uh one that should be remembered. So anyway, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all the Star Wars fans. I hope you're having a great
1: holiday. Thanks. All right, so this is Week 4 of Return the Jedi Month here on Blast Points. And this week we are talking all about the early drafts of Return the Jedi and who better... To join us in this conversation, but author and living holocron of Star Wars history, J.W. Rinzler. How are you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I hope
0: you guys. How are you guys doing? We're good. We're happy to be here with you. Honestly, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm a real holocron. L- Leland She is a holocron. My knowledge quickly disappears once you start talking about you know what kind of guns the Millennium Falcon has or. <laughs> X-Wing. I don't know any of that stuff. Uh,
2: you're, you're more like an old book that's stored in a tree, maybe? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I'm more of just
0: a uh, behind-the-scenes person. Big picture. I'm a big picture kind
1: of guy. <laughs> but I have, you know, I have my perspective. You have a little bit of experience with this subject. You have written the making of Star Wars, the making of Empire Strikes Back, making of Return of the Jedi, making of Revenge of the Sith... On top of the other countless nonfiction Star Wars books that you were either wrote or were involved in the writing with, I did Star Wars it <laughs> seemed like twenty four hours a day for fifteen years.
0: So I do know something.
1: Yes. <laughs> so let's begin back at the beginning. So the drafts of mostly written by Lucas. He wrote how many drafts? There were, you know, outlines and then a rough draft,
0: then a revised rough draft, then a the second draft. Revised second draft, third draft. So I don't know. It's four or five, and you know. And then of course Larry Kasdan came in around the uh, I think the revised second draft. You know, George basically wrote the you know the story and most most of the scenes, and then Kasdan and him wrote. And actually, that, that was kind of fascinating. That was something I discovered while I was work, doing the book that I don't think anybody had seen before because it was in this. It was a long story, but it was in this folder where you know that nobody could access, and I found it sort of by accident. And it had you know they'd written their scripts, and then George had cut and cut and pasted sort of his and Kasdan's and then hand wrote the connecting, connecting sentences for the I think believe the third draft. Like Empire, I don't think George gets enough credit. George really wrote, I'd say you know, 85% of those scripts. Kazden came in and did some very important work that really kind of, you know, made it much, much better than they would be without him. But George really should get the lion's share of the credit for those scripts, in my opinion.
1: How did the writing of the the original New Hope, Star Wars, and Empire, how did that process with Lee Brackett and... Lucas and Casden, uh, how did that inform the writing process for Return of the Jedi? Well, you know, with Lee, Lee Brackett on Empire,
0: um, you know, it was just a disaster, as I think I, I hope I explained <laughs> if you read the yeah. lines of Empire. She was, she was sick, and she didn't get it, and George basically just trashed her script. There was nothing that, virtually nothing that went from her script to the, even the next draft. And that, and then George just sort of started from, I um, mean, he'd done this, I think he'd done the treatment already. Um, and then he just, you know, wrote the script himself reluctantly because he hates writing. But the reality is, is, you know, that George is very good at story and he's, you know, and he's, a, he's much better than average writer. You know, he's not, he doesn't have the facility that a lot of the great writers have, but he's really good at story and he's really good at plot. And he's good at
2: subtext. Do you think with the the issues with Empire of, of trying to kind of pass off the writing on someone else and it not really working, did that going into Jedi, did he just decide to write the drafts himself or was there a time where he was trying to pass off the writing on someone else again?
0: Um, well, I think what happened in between was he found Larry Kasdan on Raiders and he loved Raiders and Kasdan really wrote that. I mean, George did write a treatment for that, but. Kazin really wrote you know whatever 90% of that script although they had this big brainstorming session and, and the brainstorming session was really important for for Jedi Empire and, and Raiders and they really George really really wrote Star Wars by himself although then he got help from the hikes who were actually really important as well who, who, who performed the same service or close to what Katon did but don't ever seem to get credit um, but they were really important. For Empire, the sort of the, the George had this sort of story conference with uh, Lee Brackett. Although there's no notes that I know of, anyway, of that story conference. And then he did the same thing with Spielberg and Kazdin on Raiders. And uh, I think what happened when Kazdin came on onto Empire, they kind of had a ongoing story conference with uh, Kirschner. And then um, once George got it to a place that he was comfortable with on Jedi, he had a story conference with Howard Kazanjian and um, uh, Mark Wand. And, you know, the the four of them, basically. Um, But by that point, the script was fairly well developed. And, And when I say George should get credit for Empire, I also think he deserves some criticism for Jedi because... I think he, I think I'm not sure what really what happened, but I, as I hypothesize in the book, I think he became, well, I think there were several things that happened that made him draw back from what was a much more interesting script to a, in my opinion,
1: less interesting script for Jedi. Let's get into what was some of that, the beginnings of a, of a much more interesting script. What was going on early on in these drafts of Jedi?
0: Well, You know, I think George has a habit of doing a blue sort of blue sky version and throwing out ideas, some of which were, you know, were definitely sort of ludicrous. Maybe not ludicrous, but would may not have worked for the audience, like bringing Obi-Wan back from the dead to fight the emperor. And uh, and I think Yoda, too. I can't remember if he pretty sure he I can't remember if he dies or not, but Obi-Wan definitely comes back from the dead to fight the emperor. But what was, what was great about the earliest scripts was that, you know, Leia had a lot more to do. She was leading this group of rebels on the planet ahead of time and, you know, was active and and in, you know, character driven and uh the, and there was real strife between Darth Vader and the Emperor that Darth Vader's spirit wasn't broken as as many people have pointed out, there's a disconnect between M- Vader at the end of Empire and at the beginning of Jedi, it's as if a scene was missing where the Emperor broke his spirit. And um and that was in that's in the earlier drafts. You sort of see Vader getting his spirit broken and the conflict between them and it would have been much more interesting. And then the Emperor had this whole city planet. It was the early kind of city planet or whatever evil planet in this case it wasn't really Coruscant, but was had Adabon or think i don't know how you're supposed to pronounce it because i've never heard it and uh uh, you know and and it would have been very expensive i think to do and and uh and it was giving george problems in terms of you know how i think george didn't like that idea of when you know in a movie where you see a planet attacked how do you attack a planet in a movie a planet and that's a big problem in a lot of movies kind of fall into whenever, you know, in a, these sort of Marvel movies where how, how can planets are huge? <laughs> you can't, really, if you're attacking a planet, that's your whole movie. You can't just, you know, you need a massive space thing. You got the, the planet would have a hundred places that you would have to attack at the same time. But, you know, and Kasdan argued, well, you just have this one important city and it probably, and it might've worked and it might've been a lot more interesting. I, I don't know. But then George, Part of the thing was that George was also, you have to remember that even though Star Wars was a really huge hit, George was, in his heart of hearts, disappointed with Star Wars. Because he you know, he didn't get to do what he wanted to do in that film, which is why afterwards he went off and did the special edition. And I think part of him thought, here's my chance to go back to the rough draft and redo certain key scenes the way I wanted to do them, and also solve the problem of this planet by just doing the Death Star again. Because in the rough draft, there were two attacks on the Death Star. And he also wanted to do the cantina the way he wanted to do it. So he sort of redid that in Jabba's lair. And then he redid the attack on the Death Star the way he wanted to. And at one point, there were going to be two Death Stars. That might have been interesting, too. <laughs> it was It was really, it was, you know, I, he pulled back and he... He was very. You, you could argue the other way and say George was very uh, disciplined in the way he took a story that was really maybe sprawling out of control and pulled it back into something that was coherent for an audience.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. One thing I, I was actually just thinking about recently, rewatching Return of the Jedi, that the end of the movie is. It's always neat to see how it cuts between the three stories with the you know Luke and Vader and then the Death Star attack and then the planet stuff. But what's kind of neat is as a finale for the saga, you're kind of redoing the finale of the previous two movies as well, because it's like you got the end of A New Hope with the Death Star stuff. You have the end of Empire with the Luke and Vader stuff, and then you have the end of Jedi with the forest stuff. So in, in a way, it kind of works going back to that stuff, just tying the whole thing together, it seems like.
0: Yeah, and... You know, if you, if you can stand the Ewoks, then <laughs> it all works. Yeah. And, uh, I remember when I, when I saw it as a, whenever I was 20 year old at the time, I thought, well, that's it. That's the end of this trilogy. That's the end of Star Wars. I, I can't take it seriously anymore. These guys and little, you know, you could see the, the folds and the suits and the, you know, it was so ridiculous. But it was for kids, and that's the thing. My wife is always telling me, "You have to remember, Star Wars is for kids. It's not for twenty-year-olds. Actually, it is for kids. It is for eight 8- to twelve-year-olds
2: primarily." Yeah, well, and that, thats how old we were when Empire or when Jedi came out. So we're we're uh, definitely on on Team Ewok. So. <laughs> That's why we're on week four of return of the
1: Jedi month here.
2: <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. Right. That's we had to dedicate a whole month to it. Right. One episode wasn't enough.
1: And, you know, and the Ewoks
0: were really popular. There was the two movies and there was a the TV show and, and now people love Ewoks for the most part. Um, but, uh, but, you know, George wanted again. He went back to the rough draft and the Wookiees were supposed to attack the Death Star and he couldn't do that. He wanted, he wanted to sort of have this idea of a primitive species, defeating the Empire. And so then he basically cut Wookiees in half and made Ewoks and, and had them beat be the Empire, and it worked. And it, I agree with you that the, the intercutting that George does, he makes it look easy, but, boy, was, I can't imagine how hard that must have been in editorial. It's so well done. It's really, it's so well done. and And that's where I really just love watching star Wars because they're like pieces of music. They flow when they work, they flow so well, you know, unlike almost any other
1: movie. So after the end of the empire strikes back, there were so many loose story threads. How many, Wrap ups in Return of the Jedi were set in stone from the beginning. How many things were fluid?
0: What was what was that kind of like? There was always this idea that Luke was going to be captured and end up facing the Emperor, one way or the other. Uh, and of course, there was always this idea that the Emperor was going to be killed. Uh, Han Solo's fate was up in the air, as everybody knows, you know, because Larry Kasdan at one point argued for killing him, but. I think in George's mind, and I don't think there was any question about it, I think the relationship between Luke and Leia and Han is one of those things kind of like the paternity of Darth Vader that was kind of fixed in George's head, but not totally fixed. You know, in the earliest drafts for Star Wars, in in the rough draft for Star Wars, Darth Vader, or not the earliest, but the second draft, I think it was, or Luke and Leia are cousins. And then the earliest draft, there's Anakin Starkiller and his father is half man half machine, but he's not Darth Vader, he's Kane Starkiller. So you can argue George, you know, would I'm sure would argue that it was always fixed in his mind, but it was more of a kaleidoscope if you look at the his different drafts, you know, during that Whatever it was, seven-year period when he was writing, or more, nine-year period when he was writing Star Wars, and I, I and I think I, I put in the Return of the Jedi. In fact, I know I did. I found this scrap of paper where he wrote, "Sister Leia!" exclamation mark, where it seems like that's when he decided once and for all that Luke and Leia were sisters. So it was fairly late in the process. <laughs> Which would explain empire. (laughs) I mean, it's kind. When you think about it, it's. I I really love it. I just love the way George Lucas was able to do this phenomenally successful franchise in such an ad hoc kind of way. And having worked with him for, you know, we worked on books together, which were you know a fraction of what a film costs, but it was still the same general attitudes i like, will figure that out when we get there but there were general
1: parameters that were fixed <laughs> i'm still amazed. That just a scrap of paper with something as important as sister exclamation point when you're doing research like that when you're gathering information for the the making of books where would like just this scrap of paper be and that's the thing they could be anywhere
0: <laughs> that's why well nobody will ever be able i mean not to toot my own horn but unless you work at, the Lucasfilm, and unless you put in the time, which will never happen again because that's finished. I mean, it's over uh, with Disney in the separation of Lucasfilm and you know this or that office. There was a time when I was there; I could go fluidly from image archives to the the Skywalker art archives. There was a production archives. Then there were certain things I'd ask Jane Bay, you know, who's George's executive assistant. George had stuff in his house and I went to his house a couple times and there were his bound scripts. Uh and then there was stuff that would turn up in the legal archives. It's oh, you know, we have this. Did you ever look at that? And that's where I found the only trace of uh, outline for all twelve films. What? And uh, so it could be, you know, and there was a licensing archive, and then there was the and then there was the um Actual physical film archives. So there were many places where you could find stuff. And stuff usually was in the right place, but obviously sometimes it was filed away in the wrong place. And, you know, we'd find stuff. Like when we were doing the ebook versions of the Making of Star Wars, we found the gag reel. And we found the sound first in the physical archives. And we thought, well, that's pretty cool. At least we have the sound. And then Monica, uh, two weeks later, found the actual... 16 millimeter footage and we married she married the sound to the film and luckily we you know back then you could do things like say you know we need a flatbed editing table to to view this stuff and they bought one for us so she would she would wind it up and we watched all these we just pull out a reel that it it was it'll never be like that again we were just able to pull all these reels off shelves and watch stuff and And that's how we found all the stuff that's on those, those versions. Um, so it was really kind of, you really had to know where to look and, and, spend hours and hours and hours doing it.
2: Yeah. How much time do you think you spent just on research and was it broken up for each book for, or were you doing research for all three books kind of at the same time? Cause I would imagine a lot of the stuff was in the same places, right? Or,
0: uh, it, yeah, I mean, certainly all, you know, the, all the artwork is in the Skywalker archives, but I, it was always broken up because the publisher wasn't going to commit to the next one unless the first one and then the second one did sold well enough so it was broken up and then and the first one you know I'd never done a book like that, so it was daunting and then the second one I got cocky, <laughs> and the third one, I think, is the one that is was the most satisfying,
2: and you know we got the whole process down so your making of the books kind of mirrored the making of the films a little bit, maybe. <laughs>
1: Going through doing research on the drafts for Return of the Jedi. I mean, you mentioned like the, the Leia had a lot more to do. Was there any ever a story point that just got completely abandoned, put aside, that when you read it, you were like, this should have happened?
0: Yeah, I think that the Leia starting out on the planet being there already the, w- w- would have been much better. She, Leia, and George it, it admits this, is that Leia and and uh, Han Solo kind of get forgotten in the third movie. They really don't have much to do. I I think it would have been much better for her. But then, you know, George wanted this whole thing with Jabba the Hutt, which, when you think about it, is a very odd piece of filmmaking. It's it's almost abstract in its weirdness.
2: Yeah, we talk about Jabba's Palace a lot, but yeah, it's definitely a very weird way to start a movie. Maybe that's why we love it so much, but yeah.
0: And it's, so he can't move. So, he, <laughs> in, you know, he, he's a, made him into a brilliant character, which is, you know, to their credit, but you know, there's just a series of characters brought in front of a static figure and talking. <laughs> and, it, and, the, you know, not, not with once, but three or four times. <laughs> George would even think there was even the remotest chance of that working. You know and you know he made it he makes it he made it work um although I think he said he was always disappointed with the battle over the sand pit um but still, you know it worked well enough for an audience the The plan makes no sense at all <laughs> <laughs> uh and uh again, they sort of managed to pull it off but going but in the rough drafts i I think also that that it would have been so much better if Darth Vader and the emperor were more at each other's throats and that the emperor sort of crushes his spirit and then, you know, really go after his son. And uh, that, that would have been, you know, more interesting to me.
1: Yeah. Was, was, uh, was the emperor like taunting him more? Like I'm going to physically go after Luke. or something?
0: Uh, yeah, they did taunt each other. And there was a, there was kind of a yes man that the emperor had who's spying on Vader, which is more consistent with his role. Uh, in in um, New Hope, where you have where Vader clearly is not controlling everything, he's just sort of this weird guy who's in touch with the forest. He's kind of Tarkin's go-to henchman, and it's and that's sort of the way he is in the early drafts of Jedi. You know, he's he's there to get the things back on schedule, I believe. But there's also this yes man who's kind of spying on him, and when the Emperor sends. Vader after Luke. Vader, there's kind of a contest between the Emperor and Vader to see who's going to get Luke first. And this guy clearly suspects that Vader is trying to get Luke and get him on his side, like he was in Empire, which was consistent with Empire. And so there's it's much more it's more interesting. And there's this great scene where Vader says, you know, to this other character's sort of crony, toady guy. You know, you've underestimated your importance and snaps his neck. I think another director, a stronger director, might have been able to salvage some of those parts. You know, Kirshner deserves a lot of credit for Empire because he brought in a lot of that sort of Zen Buddhism stuff for Yoda, which is really great. And, And George had a lot of respect for him. But at the same time, Kirshner didn't film it the way George wanted him to film it. Kirshner filmed it more like a, not quite Hitchcock, but more like Hitchcock where he said, I mean, I know I'm going to use this shot when he comes in. I don't need a master. I only need this shot. I need a two shot here so that it had to be kind of, and it's, you know, it's the classic producer director divide where the director does it that way. So it gets cut together the way the director wants it. Whereas George is an editor, and George wanted footage, he wanted a master shot, he wanted close-ups, he wants two shot, he wanted everything, all the material coverage he could get, and then he was going to make the movie in the editing room, and that's what Marquand did. But he wasn't a, Marquand didn't have a strong point of view about the story. Is well, I guess one of his one of his contributions was putting Leia in the slave outfit, which was totally against. the... I know it's hugely popular, but Completely against the character of Leia up until that point, you know, it's it's it, it was weird. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously true. Jabba who does it, but it was just weird. And the, and the fact that when they see her in chains, neither one of them reacts is just weird. <laughs> and she says, "And Leia," I mean Carrie Fisher says she's reading the script, and she thought it was weird too. It was like. Hey, guys, I'm just here. I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think I think even on the commentary on the Blu-ray or something, she's, she's even saying, don't worry about me. I'm just I'm just chained to this slug. Don't worry. Right, because they don't say anything to her. Yeah, it's not part of the plan. <laughs> well, they're, they're playing it cool when they come in,
0: you know? Right, but, you know, George is like that. Sometimes he'll just skiff apart unless somebody is there to say, uh, shouldn't they say something? he's not going to do it because he's got a million other things on his mind. And sometimes it just glosses over things. It, when I was adapting the rough draft into the comic book, when the guy's father in the original script, when Anakin's father dies, there's no reaction. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, and George is an unfeeling. It's just, he hadn't got that point. It was like, it was just a rough draft. It was, you know, big. So what, but, was, but, and Jedi got all the way to the final cut. <laughs> and that happened, Jedi, where it's, it's somebody did say something in the editing room about, you know, you needed a reaction shot of Vader when Luke's getting fried. And George said, oh, you're right. And they went out and they, you know, they cut one in or something. And then I think Ben Burt or somebody said, "You could why don't you see his skull when it's, you know. And so George will accept ideas, but nobody... The director should sort have of said, shouldn't they say something? I mean, he was the one filming that scene. That's the process of making movies.
1: Speaking of uh, Marquand, there's a huge section in the book the story conferences between Lucas, Kasdan, Marquand, and am I leaving anybody out? Because uh, was there. What are some of the major discussions that are going on during those epic Return of the Jedi story conferences? One of the things
0: that was really important was uh, George saying, we're not going to kill anybody off. Uh, I can't overestimate how important that moment was in the story conference. He said, I hate seeing, because, you know, if you grew up in the 60s and early 70s, you would see these movies and people would just get picked off one after one in these war movies in particular. And it was really distressing. And I would say nobody should ever die in a movie, but it was such a sort of cliche as well. You know, somebody has to die in order for this to be meaningful. And uh, George resisted that for Star Wars. And I hats off to him because it would have been awful if Han Solo and, and, you know, Yoda did die. And he wasn't, you know. Obi Wan does get killed, and that worked really
1: well. And people do die in Star Wars, but they don't do it gratuitously. In Force Awakens, was Han' death was that Kazdan still hanging on to that idea?
0: Uh, I don't, because I wasn't there, and I didn't have access to story conference notes. I don't know. I think it was, I think it was uh, J.J. Abrams' idea, but don't don't quote me
2: on that one. It actually reminds me, because we, we were joking after Solo came out that the fact that so many of the new characters died so quickly in Solo was Kasdan's revenge for not being able to kill people in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> so maybe he saved it for that.
0: I don't know. I, I didn't see the Solo movie. You know, They they were working out the details, and there was really, I think, one of the, the big deals in the story conference was how the movie should end. And there was a lot of back and forth about whether they should have the you know, the city planet, you know, the, the evil emperor planet at the end or not and how to deal with two death stars. And also there was a lot of, they, I think they were, they, they wanted to have some kind of, they wanted to connect, they were concerned about connecting the fight between Vader, the emperor and Luke with the planet below. And they wanted at one point, I think, you know, Vader was going to throw the emperor to some giant machine, which then shuts down the shield something like that. And they, and in the end, again, I think George decided that was too obvious and just put the machine down on the, the satellite, whatever it was down on the planet below.
1: Was, was there a crazy part ever where Kasdan was like, Oh, you know, Luke should put on the Vader helmet and say, I'm in control now or something. Is that, is that true? Is that, was that in the story conferences?
0: Yeah, that was in the story conference. Yeah. And I think they even joked around. I mean, but then George said, you know, basically, that's a really stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> because you can't just have people switch. I mean, people, I mean, you know, Kazin, he knows you can't just have somebody. You really have to build up to that stuff. You know, even even in, in Empire, it was handled so well. You know, there's several stages to their battle. And it's really, you know, so expertly done as it gets you know, more and more serious and there's, there's a flow to it, which is, you know, hardly matched anywhere else, you know, for that kind of stuff, you know, in any other film. So having Luke suddenly go, go against everything that he stood for and the film would just be, it would have been horrifyingly bad, <laughs> you know, and Mark Hamill is, is, I, you know, like I've said before, at least in the books, is so great and deserves so much credit for, making us believe in his character and his ethical decisions. You know, and when he throws away the lightsaber in Jedi, that's
1: a great moment. The story meetings going on, the drafts going on, Cass and coming in, how early in this process did like the Ralph Macquaries and the Joe Johnson's and the Nilo's, how early were they involved in the visualizing process while all these drafts were going on?
0: You know, George's process has always been that, it's a back and forth all the way through the making of the movie, which again, he's one of the few people who can pull it off fairly consistently. He's telling the concept artists, very vague ideas about what's happening very early on. And they're contributing ideas and he's putting some of them into the script and he's going back to them and saying, well, now they're going to do this. And what about that? Can you do this for me? You know, just goes back and forth. So, uh, those guys were start, Ralph and and Joe Johnston and Neela were all started, there was a meeting with the three of them, if I remember correctly, and they were started pretty early. I mean, I remember meeting with George, I think it was Eric Tiemann, Ryan Church, and Robert Barnes. We were, they were still shooting episode two. And there was a first meeting for episode three, and George said, so it was going to be seven battles on seven planets i need seven planets and you know
1: that was it left the room (laughs) run with it just go with it guys yeah yeah
0: and i i can't remember exactly what he i think he you know for i know for empire he said you know it's going to be a battle here and it's going to be an ice castle or something which that idea never panned out but um and for jedi I mean, I think you can, I think he you thought about going they were going to go to the Wookiee planet, that's right well he taught. he got them working on the um the emperor's planet, and there are all these great drawings, and there was going to be that grass planet that the rebel base was going to be on at one point, so he had them working pretty pretty early, of course, the ewoks is a long running saga <laughs> drove
1: Macquarie out <laughs>
0: Ralph had enough with the ewoks
1: How much of their um, concept art production art, how much did that inform the screenwriting process? Well, I know it did on
0: an empire quite a bit because they were looking at Macquarie's paintings and it really inspired Kirshner. Uh, And you know they knew it gave, gave them an idea of what Yoda looked like. I don't think it had as big a impact on Jedi because so many of the stuff they were doing were just abandoned wholesale, you know the pyramids. On the on the uh, Emperor's Planet and you know, the whole all of that was abandoned. I think uh George really liked Nilo's costume design. But I, I I I get the impression it didn't have as much of an impact on the screenwriting process as in the previous two
1: movies. But that's just an impression. It is that great Macquarie painting of uh was it Vader and Luke talking to the Emperor in like a lava cave thing? yeah and the
0: thing about and the thing that I think a lot of fans don't understand is that on Empire and Jedi that you know Ralph was employed to create paintings after after the movie was shot and would do paintings based on stuff that had been filmed and people turn it around and go look at that they followed Ralph McQuarrie's painting almost perfectly that's not not what happened but uh, that, I love that I love those paintings that Ralph did and the, the pyramids and stuff and the, the
1: and the uh, double Death Stars and all that stuff. But
0: he basically, though, was just burned out.
1: How far along into, with the Lucas drafts, did Kasdan come in? And was Kasdan always coming back for another movie? Was that always a sure deal? Or was that kind of more up in the air after The Empire Strikes Back?
0: I think it was up in the it was Yeah, it was up in the air because um, he want, Kasdan wanted to direct, and he went off and did... A, Body heat. I can't remember exactly the timing, but um, it was Marquand who kind of persuaded George to at least ask um, if Casdin could come back. And I think Casdin felt like he owed it to George because George was, you know, helped launch his career, and um, so he came back and and did it. But he wasn't as invested. It wasn't that big as big a deal for Casdin to be involved as it was for him to be on Empire or really on Raiders and then Empire. You know, like a lot, that's that's, the, the the amazing thing about these movies is they are so seat of your pants. You know, they're spending a lot of money and a lot of really talented people. um, But it's all very, everything you do is kind of a prototype. You know, that's, I can't remember who told me that, but you know, it's just amazing. That's why I,
1: I, one of the reasons why I have so much respect for all the people who make movies. It's like the the classic Indiana Jones. I'm making it up as I go, kind of. Thing. Yeah, exactly. And
0: and they are. You know, the things are made, fabricated in the editing room. Even in the first one, the, it was never written in the script that you know the rebel base was going to be in danger of being blown up. That was not in the script. It was, if I recall, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was all created in the editing room, and you know, and then it was Marsha... Lucas and and George talking things over in the desert of Tunisia when they decided to kill Obi-Wan because he survived at first and, but they had nothing to do. And so, you know, they said somebody has to die when they go into the death star. And then by killing off Obi-Wan, it allowed George to write about life after death and the whole point of the force in a way, which, so that comes in while they were shooting the movie and Alec Guinness almost quits I mean he really came close to quitting I don't think I knew when I wrote that how close he was to actually quitting I think George told me that no no actually no he did we were making frames and he came in and told me that so it should be in the book but he really had to talk uh, Alec Guinness off the precipice and and he said what I I die and I don't even get a death scene
2: (laughs) (laughs) his cloak got a death scene
0: yeah (laughs) and uh and also he was a roman catholic and didn't like the idea of of coming back as a ghost so i mean imagine you're george you're you're you just shot in tunisia where pretty much it was a disaster you come back and your main bankable star is going to quit because you're killing him off and you've got to go have lunch with him and talk him out of it i mean that's how seat of the pants these things are i think i'd have a heart attack And George did think he was having a heart attack later when he came back (laughs) and found out that ILM had spent all their money without completing really any shots. He always told me, whenever you faced anything even remotely difficult, that I would say, how did you get through that? And he said, for God's sakes, I did Star Wars.
2: luke vader fight when uh luke refuses to fight and finally vader says he's going to turn leia wasn't that like either a late addition to the script or something that was added in as a reshoot or like a pickup
0: yeah i think that's in the book yeah you're right um yeah you remember the book better than i (laughs) (laughs) do.
2: i just i think that one always sticks out to me because it seems like such an obvious answer and it's funny how sometimes that the obvious answer you miss for a lot, you know.
0: Right? Because it's easy when you're, you know, you've got hours and hours, or you know, to think about a movie. These, these guys are running around from meeting to meeting, from crisis to crisis. There's things that I can't say or write in the book that are happening too,
1: you know, and yeah. uh, <laughs> and so you, it it seems obvious, but it's not. With what you know of the writing of Return of the Jedi and that process. How did that inform going forward with, um, episode one, Lucas writing the script by himself and two, he brought in a collaborator and then Sith. Did you see any lessons from Jedi repeating into the, the later prequel era films?
0: Well, the thing is, you know, when I, the, the chronology for me was I came in the middle of episode two. Yeah. I wasn't actually there early on. And so I, then I was there, you know, Saw more than anybody except George and Rick for episode three, so I really got an education in real-world filmmaking and how George works specifically. And then I wrote those three books. So having seen what I saw in episode three helped me understand what was going on earlier. I you know a lot of those guys were still are, were in, were still around at that time. Lauren Peterson was still in the model department. Dennis Murren was around. You know, people who've been there for a long time. Obviously, Ben Burt was around, and and Ben and those guys. Over the years, I learned. You know, I learned more. That's another why reason why I think Return of the Jedi is the better book is I had a, the best understanding of how things work. But also, working with George on the on the books just gave me an insight into how his mind worked. I, I really think Ben Burt, You know, if people that in the museum of modern art knew it were knew what they were doing and maybe they do, they, they should, uh, it should do a retrospective on Ben Burt's work. Yeah.
2: Well, and we recently did a episode on the sounds of star Wars book that you did as well. So, so your, your spirit was, uh, all through return of the Jolly month.
0: <laughs> yeah. With all this, the, it's like he creates tone poems, sound symphonies. I mean, they're, it's fantastic. You know that that's one of the high points of Jedi I, I'm sure you know is the
2: speeder bike chase. Oh, uh, there should just be a Ben Burt museum somewhere.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, John Barry too. And all the you know George would make corrections on the manuscripts. And uh, one of the things that he changed was he I think he said you know John Barry was great or something and he just changed the word great to genius. I think without John Barry, there was no Star Wars movie. You know, George didn't know had never made a sound stage movie before, really. So John Barry really helped him through all that, and Roger Christian, and a lot of other people. But those guys were really important. That, that's what I was going to say before, too. Um, that sort of back and forth, and when George gets to post, that's something that he does that. I don't I mean I don't can't I don't know, maybe other people do it, but mostly I think people don't do it where he's handing off his reels uh to the to Ben Burke to do the sound. You know, even if the edit isn't locked, he's like, here, do the sound. And then he's oh if this you're gonna do the sound there, then I'm gonna cut this here. And so he's got there's a back and forth because he knows how important sound is to the picture. Most people most productions lock the picture and then hand it over to the sound people who have a very short period of time to do the sound and then but it's locked and you can't really change anything and the, and the first film that was really key because nobody knew what you know anybody was going to sound like and they said oh if r2d2 is going to do that then we're going to cut to these guys reacting and that sort of thing And it was really really important to the success of the film
2: yeah so what uh upcoming projects do you have or anything what's new with you
0: yeah i have this book uh all up which is a uh a historical novel about the first space age and uh it's a, it's kind of, it's about uh Werner von Braun, and then the american jack parsons who i think there was a tv show about recently who was you know this guy who was On the one hand, interested in sex magic. On the other hand, one of the co-founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. (laughs) (laughs) Strange fiction. And then the Russian, uh, Sergei Korolev, who nobody in the West really knows about, but who is really responsible for many firsts in the space age. And So it's it's their story, plus a lot of really cool, unknown, behind-the-scenes stuff. It's kind of like a behind-the-scenes story, except a novel. And it goes from you know basically all the way through pre World War II, but mostly part one is World War II, and the second part is the space race up to the Apollo Eleven mission. Uh, So
1: it took about five or six years to do. So I'm pretty happy with it, and it's on Amazon. And was it was there something Planet of the Apes out there too going on? Uh, The Planet of the Apes book is coming out in about two months.
0: that was a really fun project. I pitched it to Fox and for the 50th anniversary and they said okay. And and then a lot of pieces just came together. The, the Heston Fraser Heston and the Heston estate uh got behind it and gave us some stuff and I went to archives, you know, the Franklin Schaffner archives, the director and then the producer there's his archives, and there was a lot of really cool stuff. And for the first time, I think, ever, we got all the concept art together in the in the same place. A lot of it, I don't think, has been seen before. Oh, wow. And it's, and it's a fascinating story. Another seat of your pants, you know, just the, the, the producer, Arthur Jacobs, just spent years trying to get that movie made. And people quite literally laughed him out of offices, you know, for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joking? You know, and, and Rod Serling wrote the script and people think that he wrote the script. in fact, there's hardly anything of his script that made it to the final movie because he didn't believe in the concept either. It was, um, yeah, Michael Wilson, who doesn't get he's, his name is on the credit, but he's a guy who was blacklisted and helped write movies like Bridge on the River Kwai and and Lawrence of Arabia. And it's a wonderful life. I mean, a really great writer. He came in and wrote a hell of a script for Planet of the Apes. And, and it was after the movie had been greenlit, too. I mean, that's how C Your Pants did. They really had a crappy script. <laughs> and they got a green-lit. And then this guy came in and just hit the ball out of the park.
1: That sounds fascinating. With f- fans of uh, your making Star Wars books, is it kind of in the same style as, uh, as some of those? In exactly the same style.
0: <laughs> I don't have any other way of doing it. <laughs>
2: do you know because since i mean you made it and it is similar style are there plans to do a like an ipad version as well with video clips and things because the e-versions of the star wars books are are just so much they're really incredible just for the fact that you get the audio clips and the video and that sort of thing that even makes the book even better are there do you know if there's plans to do something like that for the planet of the apes one as well
0: no i mean i know there's no plans for it yeah um there's a lot of moving parts to these projects and I, i doubt that would happen the the star wars ones again were were unique because you know lucasfilm was a private company and the publisher was very easy to work with and uh i actually wanted to do one for the indiana jones book oh
2: yeah those those ipad versions put like every other book to shame just because there's this all the just the extra stuff would have been worth the purchase price without even getting the whole book as well like Oh, they're really great.
0: I, I'm, I was really happy with those. I, 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 the publisher was great in wanting to do them, but they really they didn't publicize them at all. And I, I still think there's a lot of fans out there that don't know that there's literally about an hour and a half of pretty much unseen stuff. I mean, you guys correct me if I'm wrong in terms of video
2: uh, if you get those books. Yeah, no, there's a lot of stuff we had never seen before when those came out. Yeah. And, and we're, and we're still, yeah, we tell anyone who will listen whenever anyone talks about those books, like you got to get the iPad version, go borrow a a friend's iPad if you don't have one just to see all that stuff.
0: (laughs) Although I think, I think somebody said that new Kindles can play well, but the old ones couldn't. People people were quite pissed off about that. (laughs) Uh, It is kind of weird, but that's the, that's the, whatever. Out of my hands, but yeah, I, I really tried to have, make sure that each video clip is something that, that I'd never seen before. And I ran it by uh, Leland and Pablo, and they hadn't seen it either. So I'm pretty sure it's about an hour and a half of pl- uh, video and then an hour and a half of audio altogether that's never been seen before. I was, I was so happy to find the audio of George directing Alec Guinness and how to say, The Force will be with you always. I mean, that's, that was so cool.
1: Yeah. No big deal. Yeah. And that's out there. That's out there for people to discover and probably people have an iPad and it's just out there waiting for you people. It's amazing stuff. Yeah.
2: It's always a good time to reread those books.
0: Yes. And I think they're only about 17 or 18 bucks. So it's a pretty good deal.
1: Yeah. Every time I go through those books, I feel like it sounds cliche, but I think it's true. There's some factoid or some bit that I was like, Oh, I don't even remember reading that part before.
2: I was going to say, there's too much to absorb on one read. You you think you got everything, but you never do. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember half the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: right. the, the, what's cool about the audio, too, is we didn't take audio from, you know, 50 years later. It's stuff that we, you know, we had these tapes. Because I knew where the tapes were in the research library, so we, so we digitized the actual tapes that were done in, you know, 1975 and 77 and 79 and so forth. And uh, so you really hear the timber of the voice and how they felt at the, at the time. So I was very happy with that. And it was funny because Matthew Wood was the one who told us that there was this audio of George, you know, Matthew Wood from Skywalker sound told us that he'd heard it somewhere, but he couldn't, he didn't know where it was. And so I told Monica and the film archives, we have to find this, but there was, there was no, there was no, nothing written down. you know? There was no way of knowing where it was. And I, I don't remember how we found it or how she found it, but it, we, it, we turned it up
1: and I was so happy. This has been an amazing conversation, shining a light on those early drafts, Return of the Jedi, and so much more. Thank you so much for talking to us tonight.
0: Oh, well, thank you guys for having me. It's a lot of fun to uh, talk about this stuff.